Hello, and welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas into what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. My name is Lauren Richmond Jr. Today I'm pleased to be joined by Pastor Melissa Floor Bixler. Melissa is the pastor of Rally Mennonite Church and a graduate of Duke University and Princeton Theological Seminary. She spent time studying in Israel, Palestine, Kenya, and England. Much of her formation took place in the large community of Portland, Oregon. Now she prefers the Eno River and her garden in Raleigh, North Carolina. She is the chair of the large North Carolina and a steering committee member in broad-based organizing in her county. Melissa's writing has appeared in Christian Century, Sojourners, G's, Anabaptist Witness, The Bias, Faith and Leadership, and Anabaptist Vision. She's also the author of the newly uh, released book, which we'll be talking about here more today, How to Have an Enemy. From time to time, she does also publish academic writing, and she and her spouse parent three children. So let's welcome Melissa to the show. Uh, anything else you'd like our listeners to know about you? Um. Uh- I mean, it feels like all of life is so reduced here in the pandemic time. I, that it's um, it's kind of amazing that I, at some point in my life, I was productive enough to do any of those things. But <laughs> yeah, here we are. Uh, I have to ask this: uh, We're recording uh, beginning March Madness is happening. I think. Uh, so, are you a Duke fan? Like basketball, being a graduate. I yeah I am a, a Duke basketball fan. Just you know I th- I know there are strong opinions about mm-hmm. that, and I I pastor a um, a congregation with many different basketball allegiances. But mm-hmm. we are we like to remind each other that we're first one in Christ yeah. um, before <laughs> we have um, triangle area basketball allegiances. So what do you have? Because obviously Duke North Carolina is a thing. Who else are the teams that folks really get into out there? Yeah, so NC State, which is you know not usually as big a player right. on the national stage, but is mm-hmm. is certainly a local local rival. But um, North Carolina Central University had a pretty good run a couple years ago through okay. the through the tournament. So historically black university. So we're really proud of that team, and um, yeah. So so there's a lot of a lot of strong basketball feelings in our area. That reminds me, I think uh, I think I just saw us at Norfolk State, maybe, if I'm right. They're an HBCU, and I think they won last night. Uh, again, as we're recording this. Uh, right. <laughs> I used to get so into, so into the, all that, and now I'm just like, eh, who cares? Maybe that's just COVID mm-hmm. exhaustion yeah. of life, but. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah. I, I haven't even, I, I didn't even worry about printing out a bracket so i didn't this is the first year in many years i haven't done a bracket but i'm like these all these teams could like come down with covid and be out right. it feels like you know a really fraught uh time to sort of put your energy into something like that 
Yeah, I know for our listeners that are like, hey, when did this become like a like a college basketball podcast breakdown show? But Melissa's school, Duke, uh, what they got, they had like a COVID test in the AECC tournament and they just said, we're done. Yeah, just can't do it. Yeah. 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 So my, my team is, my team's out from the, from the very beginning. Um, I mean, I was not crying. So sorry, Melissa, because like, Duke is kind of like the New England Patriots of college basketball. Well, and uh, you know, I'm a Yankees fan, so I can't be too judgmental. Yeah, but so you know, you know what that feels like. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah I understand. I mean, I I empathize with all the strong feelings about Duke. I, you know, that's they're all justified. <laughs> well, um, let's move on from this hot college basketball talk. Uh, talk about, if you would, your kind of journey of faith and uh, what that looks like today. I uh, grew up in a Christian family. So it was, uh, you know, I have one of those stories where just uh, the, the church and the faith was always just an assumed part of my life. Um, and, uh, you know, I was I was definitely one of those um, churchy kids. Like, um, I I mean, definitely thought church was boring. Um, and to be honest, I still do. Oh. And but I, yeah, I mean, but I think what I've just come to embrace that like things that are uh, occasionally boring, not not always boring, but uh-huh. um, occasionally boring are actually um, can can be really good. <laughs> so yeah. that's so I'm I feel I feel better about that, but. Uh, yeah, grew up in a in a in a, on the more conservative end of the of the kind of Christian scale of things, mm-hmm. and um, had a, that sort of influence of uh, personal faith in Jesus Christ that had a lot more to do with sort of piety and morality more than just about anything else. Witnessing to friends and trying to get people to give their life to Jesus. Mm -hmm. And all of that was very much a part of my sort of understanding of what it meant to be a Christian growing up. And really that began to shift when I went to do for graduate school. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's when I encountered the Mennonites. And I... I didn't know anything about Mennonites. Yeah. Um, I, uh, or I should say I knew a little. Like the things that I think we, you know, that people ask me all the time, like, where's your buggy? Why aren't you wearing a, <laughs> you know, why aren't you wearing a funny hat? Yeah, um, yeah. Right. But but actually the first Mennonites I met um, really didn't, like, d- kind of blew open those sort of categories, both of the sort of racial ethnic categories, like the first Mennonite I met was, um, uh, uh, he calls himself a African. Um, his father's Ethiopian, his mom's a white Lancaster County Mennonite. Um, oh. from, uh, so half Ethiopian, half, uh, uh sort of white, uh, ethnic Mennonite descendant. And then, um, yeah, so, so really began to sort of understand this as a theological tradition, not just an ethnic tradition mm-hmm. and that this theological tradition sort of understood faith as something much broader than sort of some people's personal experiences of, or even just corporate experiences of what it meant um, to be followers of Jesus. But actually it's something to do with like how you spent your money and mm. the kind of jobs that you took mm-hmm. um, or refused to take. And 
even like super weird things, like whether you took oaths or not, <laughs> or oh. said the Pledge of Allegiance, right? Mm-hmm. Like, actually, there is this. Um, so, whereas I think I had been thinking, oh, wow, my faith is really a part of my life, right? you mm-hmm. know, like it's very yeah. intensive. When I actually met Mennonites, I was like, no, I have like, what I've done is I've basically taken Jesus and just tried to kind of shove Jesus into the cracks of the things of like, of all the other stuff. Yeah, yeah. And what we're actually being asked to do when we say we're, we're signing up for this Jesus thing is like to dump everything out um, and to, to do this assessment of what, what does this mean um, as a life of faith? And so that was a really big shift for me, um, and it eventually led me to sort of uh, plot my life down among the people of the Mennonite Church. Now, give our listeners, and you can give me, because my Mennonite history is not super strong, uh, a little Mennonite history lesson. So if I understand correctly, y'all go back to Menno Simmons, is that right? Simons. Mm-hmm. Simons. Yeah. And if I yeah. understand correctly, there was a split... Uh, amongst the followers, and some went. Um, now I'm blanking on on the real traditional side. Help me out here. Yeah. Um, Amish, right? Sure. And some went yeah, Mon- yeah. Mennonite. Um, yeah. So, like, even kind of a step back from there, sure. I think one of the um, the places that's sort of helpful for people to position us within church history is the Reformation, mm-hmm. right? So you have Luther and the what we call the like the magisterial reformation um the the like the reformation that we think of as the reformation um but there's also this little group that that really didn't feel like the reformation went far enough um and these were people who actually broke off of Zwingli um the Zwinglian reformation yeah there we go it's a good name yeah. for church history yep yep there you go um and the radical in radical reformation, uh, unfortunately, doesn't mean like, like rad, man. It's like uh, rad, like as in like the root, um, back to the like the radical of um, the root of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, so people who really felt like if you were going to do the reformation, you got to like go all the way. Like you got to, you can't. Um, Jesus lived this nonviolent life and refused to involve himself in a reforming state politics. So you need to, you know, distinguish yourself from the state in a in a um, in a very pre- uh, definitive way. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus called people to live simply, so we have to like actually take seriously how we spend our money. Um, and Jesus. The positive command in the Bible is to um, make disciples and then baptize people. So we should do that too. We should um, not baptize infants. We should actually, you know, have people be discipled first and then mm-hmm. make an intentional decision to commit their lives to the church. So those that was sort of the and then like a lot of churches like you know in that emerge. There's a lot of factionalism that happens. Yeah. Um, how does that actually look when you get down to the nitty gritty of living life together? And there's this one guy, Menno Simons, who, yeah, that that becomes the tradition that the Mennonite Church emerges from. So, 
So again, we're talking about broadly speaking, big umbrella. We're talking about like the Anabaptist tradition, right? From a right. thirty thousand foot view. See, this is a good question. Yeah. Let me ask. This is a, a question I want to ask you. I remember I grew up very conservative Baptist, and in Bible mm-hmm. college, um, there's some folks who thought that the Independent Baptists of my ilk that we stemmed from the Anabaptists, and there's some folks who didn't think so. I don't know if that's in your wheelhouse or not. <laughs> I mean, not entirely, but but talking to Baptist friends, I think it do, it has helped me appreciate that there is more of a shared lineage. Mm. Um, I've even heard some Baptists say that they are actually, like Baptists are more, um, uh, a closer inheritance to the, <laughs> To, to the Anabaptist movement. I, I believe like, that okay, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, okay, is that that's what we're doing here? Fine. <laughs> um, I, you know, whatever whatever makes you feel comfortable in this world. Yeah. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Like more, a lot of shared lineage, which is why, you know, like James McClendon and other Baptists have actually been really informative. Uh, have for, have been very formative for Anabaptist theology because there are a lot more shared commitments than I think, um, than in, than in a lot of other traditions. Mm. Uh, this is, this is, you may be bored out by this and so my our listeners, but it's reminding me of a fun memory from Bible college. There was a professor there who could, who apparently had a, drawn a lineage from the group of Baptists that I was a part of all the way back to, all the way back to John the Baptist. So Ooh, that's some yeah. skilled lineage. I love that. That's- making there. Yeah, you should you should think about like a second podcast called um fun memories of Bible college <laughs> and I think that there could actually be some really good content that comes out of that. So. I was not I was too good of a Baptist to have any real fun mm-hmm. memories though. Like You could put it in quote fun memories. Okay. Yeah. What I really want to yeah. do Melissa and I need to have time to work with this. I want to start a pod, another podcast called Angry Congregationalists, where we just share like funny stories of Congregationalists acting badly <laughs> in church. Oh, that sounds amazing! Yeah, we, um, we just I can't, to... I'm, I'm actively pastoring, but when I retire, like I will, I'm I'm happy to fill out. A Change the of those names episodes. and the situations to protect the innocent, but. <laughs> Yeah, can we do like the voice, like where it like changes the voice, you know, the voice modifications? Yeah, <laughs> I think that uh, we're we're really onto something here. Yeah, um, yeah. We, All right, yeah. we have we have a lot more to talk about here. Uh, yeah. Give me real quick. Uh, give me a, like a spiritual practice or um, spiritual practice you you've found meaningful or you might recommend to others. Um. Uh, yeah, so I am um, not great at spiritual practices. Um, so I, I, um, I have a pretty new one in the past year, which is that our congregation, people from our congregation, Raleigh Mennonite, have been meeting for morning prayer together mm. uh, every morning. And that has been, um, which, you know, is not like a super Anabaptist thing, like to have like like a sort of consistent liturgical, that's, that's something that we've had to sort of regather from, Mm. from our Christian past. Um, And that has been a really helpful way of sort of centering the day around scriptural discernment with other people. And 
just to keep our to, to keep our very honest prayers always before other people um, who share in this practice with us, and that's been very meaningful to me, especially during the pandemic, where it's it's felt so you felt so distanced from people yeah. to actually to have a space of gathering every day for twenty minutes. Awesome, awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Well, let's yeah. jump in talking about your book, uh, "How to Have an Enemy." Uh, give us the full title. Is there more than that? I don't remember. I'm sorry. There is. Let's see if I can get it right. Um, How to Have an Enemy, Righteous Anger, and the Work of Peace. There we go. There we go. Uh, comes out in July. So uh, we'll see when this actually airs, but be looking for that in July, folks. Talk about the idea behind the book and then, you know, don't you don't need to give away the whole, <laughs> the whole thing, but what you mean by an enemy. Mm. So, you know, we're um, pacifists, Mennonites Mm -hmm. are pacifists. And I think that has puts us in a peculiar position when it comes to enemies. So we're, there's a sort of um, uh, commitment to enemy love that, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't, I don't think we're the the we have the sole <laughs> the the, the uh, corner on the market of of enemy love, but it has taken mm-hmm. a particular form um, in our lives um, because we have made a commitment not to take up arms, not to participate in state sponsored violence. Um, but I think that also um, may have. But just also has led to a lot of questions about, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes we'll even have people say like, well, we don't actually have enemies or, or Jesus is the end of enemies or, yeah. um, and I think that especially over the past four years um, of the Trump administration, we've just had, we've just emerged into sort of, um, I think a different sort of pressure point mm-hmm. <laughs> around those questions then that has led to some, some space that needed to be excavated within our tradition. But I, but I think is also true for lots of people in the church who are trying to figure out what does it mean to both have enemies well, to know who they are Mm -hmm. um, and to anticipate a world without enemies. Um, And so this was really, you know, I think anything I write, I I'm the primary audience. (laughs) It's like, it's more like, Oh, I have a question, and um, I I bet other people also have this question. So let's let's like wonder about this together. Um, so I hope it's a a book that's a that begins a conversation rather than like you know, I I try to be very careful about these are not um this is not a prescription. Mm-hmm. Um, this is more um a space for us to wonder together so that we can, so that we can, can construct the reign of God in the way that Jesus has uh, made possible for us. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of like this podcast. I'm really just doing it because I want to talk to a bunch of interesting people and learn from them. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> um, there's a quote I read early on in the book that really kind of stood out to me. I'm going to paraphrase it here, but basically you're saying that when we meet Jesus, we, we we resist systems, and I thought that was profound. It kind of reframes uh, this kind of quote unquote personal relationship that we usually think of, or at least is common in American Christianity. Can you talk more about that? Hmm. 
Yeah, I do think that, like you're saying, in in what has happened in American Christianity is this 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 sort of bifurcation that we have the internal life mm-hmm. and the external life. Yep. And even when we start to talk about things like reconciliation, right? It's like, do we get along <laughs> with somebody else? I think is is actually what we mean by that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Are are we able to sort of put aside our differences and not fight any, you know, and not feel badly about one another? Um, which is actually, you know, when we sort of do this dive into the New Testament. Is is not what Jesus presents to us as reconciliation. Um, these are actually people's um, economic and social worlds that yeah. have been yeah. completely broken apart, and then something else is being built in their place. So over and over again in the epistles, we see sort of this, you know, the 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 confronting word of the gospel of Jesus Christ mm-hmm. and then people continuing to 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 want to hedge on that in a variety of ways and um and so we so yeah getting the getting this opportunity to really see that that reconciliation is is the the reformulated world that we live in mm. um around the around the life of Jesus um more than it is our ability to sit in the room and you know not disagree with each other yeah yeah i want to i want to keep going with that point about this kind of false kumbaya if that's a fair way to say it cuz you write about uh, i don't remember where it falls in the book but you kind of write about this image or this church that kind of like wants to do this kind of like I don't know. I I hate to use the word kumbaya, but that's what it kind of comes to mind. Like, hey, let's come and all be friends. Let's take communion together. And you point out, if I'm remembering correctly, like, there's like an ICE agent, but also like an undocumented immigrant. And you kind of talk about how like this kind of like pretending that everything is hunky dory isn't really cool. And you talk about like the power imbalances there. And I was thinking about this as someone who's like, I'm like obsessed with like dual relationships. <laughs> Something we yeah. talk about often in clergy circles a lot. Uh, and uh, talk about power imbalances and conflict. Because I thought, uh, you know, I, I think so often we're like, oh, that's so great. There's an ICE agent and a undocumented immigrant coming together. and But the, the power imbalances you point out are really important to look below that surface level stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And this is where, you know, I think that when we're in these moments, you know, who actually bears the burden yeah. of tolerance? Yeah. That is all that has become the most um significant question for me in terms of this work is who actually bears the burden. Um and it is it is consistently the person in that power imbalance who has been is disempowered and is actually um their future their their flourishing is controlled by another power mm. right so yeah so you are you're talking about um yeah when when you are the dominant power holder in a situation right it's not we we don't really have tolerance because tolerance only happens uh, with people who are of of equal amounts of power um but as soon as you start to calculate that into the question you begin to see that oh what we're actually asking people to do is um uh 
uh, a people who've been disempowered um, to um, bear the weight of unity. Um, and so yeah. this is the question. So that's why I, you know, I think a really important question for us to, to ask is who is asking for unity? Yeah. Who is it? You yeah. hear, we need to have unity. Who is actually asking that question? Um, because that, that is not always, this is, you know, it depends on your situation, but those, it's not always the same people who are saying we need justice mm-hmm. or we need things to set right. Like we need to address this power imbalance and talk about what it means for our material lives um, before we can actually ask about unity. And if the and and so I'm so I think it's important for us to begin to ask that question: Who is asking for unity? Yeah, and again, I think if I'm understanding correctly, just being aware of those power imbalances can be so helpful. Because if I'm following your point right, it's like the folks in power or or conversely, the folks with less power to find unity. It's almost like the folks who are suffering almost have to like suffer more for there to be unity. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that's, you know, they, I try to mostly speak from my, from my, sure. from my own life. Sure. Um, but this is often the case with um, the question about women in ministry. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there, there, there are women who continue to work for their place in the pulpit to be able to, uh, to preside over the sacraments to, uh, so, so we have this situation and you really think about it. What you're asking for is for people in power, men mm-hmm. to let you in the door, right? Yeah. Like you don't even have a, you're not, it's not, it's not like there's, um, you know, we're all sitting equally around this table because yeah. you have already been excluded from the from the decision you're basically trying to talk someone in to or to amass enough power to be able to change mm-hmm. the situation and so recognizing that um the people who are asking or working towards their inclusion are not in the same position of of bearing the burden the the burden of the powerful is to give up power Right. It's um, yeah. And that's a very different um, I wouldn't even describe that as a burden. That's just a that that's the experience you're you're being asked to invite it to widen the table to invite more people in. Yeah. I mean, I, I might say it, in some ways it is a burden, uh, maybe not in the proper sense of the word, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. But like I was thinking about this, I'm talking about this in my message uh, that's actually going to air this Sunday as we're recording this about like. Change is loss, and loss needs to be grieved. And there's a whole lot of white men who are who are experiencing change and are losing something, whether they deserve it or not. And they need to like grieve that that they're they've lost something, whether or not it was fair, deserved or not. That's a, that's my opinion anyway. Just yeah, recognize. I don't know. Recognize it, something's changed. Um. Let's talk about. I'm curious. So your 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 big point in this book is like how to have en- enemies well. So talk a little bit about if you can what it looks like to have enemies well, mm. or having the correct enemies. Yeah. I guess Jesus says have the correct enemies, so have them well. Sure. Yeah. So I I hope to introduce a few uh, sort of concrete like. Uh, more practical ways that that I think we can. Um, yeah, I didn't want this just to all be theoretical. Yeah. Um, even though I 
there's a lot of that yeah, in there. And yeah. so, so I have a, you know, a chapter about uh, congregational discernment um, and that really comes out of the Acts story of the Council of Jerusalem, um, which is one of my, is, you know, sort of a classic Mennonite discernment story and, and certainly one of my favorite stories where, mm-hmm. you know, you have um, these decisions, you know, Jesus is gone and now everybody has to decide what this new church that's somehow made up of um, people who are ethnically diverse and uh, who are economically diverse, who do have different practices and different rituals are going to like hang out together and mm-hmm. share all their stuff like, <laughs> and create like a new sort of world together. Um, and there's this, um, this phrase that I love, which is, um, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Mm, yeah. That, that's what they, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. And, uh, and so, so really what does it mean for, for us to listen for the Holy Spirit and trust the discernment that goes on when we study scripture together instead of, um, in, instead of sort of relying on, um, Either you know stereotypes that we have about about different people, but yeah. but actually asking, beginning with the question of um, what what is it that what do, when we say Jesus, what do we really mean here? <laughs> like when we say mm-hmm. our unity is in Jesus, like let's get into like the nitty gritty of what that means for us. Yeah, like what are what are the places that really. Um, where do we need to discern together about the kind of life that we're going to live as a local congregation? Um, and I think the other side of that, and, you know, I really wanted to, um, it's hard to talk about, you can't talk about enemies in the New Testament without talking about uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees mm-hmm. and high priests. Yeah. This becomes a really complicated yeah. space yeah. for Christians. And so I wanted to be so careful about that chapter and what it really emerged in in just a lot of study onto into the the way that enmity had been formed between Judaism and Christianity is how much scholarship has emerged from assumptions about who the other is yeah rather than um uh taking them on their um in, instead of actually understanding the argument that's coming, I, and I, I don't think it's um, at the end of the day, we can we can disagree with people, and we can say, no, actually, these are these are real differences. These are very serious mm-hmm. and real differences between us. Um, but if those come out of um, yeah, again, assumptions that we make, or because we've been passed down bigoted or stereotypical ideas about what another person believes, actually understanding um, what the thing is that we're concerned about um, is, a, is a really important part of having enemies well. Otherwise, it just sort of devolves into, um, you know, I just, I heard, you know, this is, I heard that you thought this about this <laughs> yeah, thing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Something you, you, uh, something within the what you're just saying uh, reminds me of something that stood out in your book that really kind of, I was really quite intrigued by the idea. You you wrote about this individual anger versus communal anger, and I hear I heard you kind of talking about the the work of community uh, in your early in your response you just made. Uh, talk more about that the the 
difference and distinction between that individual versus communal anger? Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I think that the, the beauty of scriptures that we sort of are given the space for both of those things, mm-hmm. right? We have these Psalms where it talks about this very personal experience of anger. Yeah. Um, and I think really that uh, something that's, um, that perhaps we feel a, a little bit more anxious about is what does it mean to be communities that cultivate anger in in a in a healthy way, yeah, yeah. rather than um, just saying like, oh, you know, we we're not angry about anything, <laughs> like we're like um, so suppressing suppressing anger doesn't really get get you far. Yeah. Um, it it usually backfires at some <laughs> yeah. point. Yeah. Um, and I think like in, in pastoral ministry, we see this backfire in people getting upset about stuff that you're like, why, why are you making a big deal yep. about this other thing? Yep. And it's, it's oftentimes because you haven't actually allowed there to be space about like real issues and conflicts. Yeah. Um, yep. And I think that also moves us into how can we be angry about the same thing for the right reasons, yeah. right? <laughs> Instead of... Um, yeah, just again, sort of like trying to hold it together on Sundays, and then everybody goes off and does their own thing, and then we try to hold it together on Sundays, and and this is where you know I think Audrey Lord is so helpful, and where she talks about how anger is actually like a clarifying force, mm. like it, it can be something that um, is like a spotlight is one of the images that that she uses. It, it's um. It actually um, helps to form communities around the things that that God is also angry about, um, and that God wants to rescue us corporately from. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know. This might be a stretch. So tell me if I'm off base here. But I was thinking about how, going back to your idea of the power imbalance and conflict, I was thinking about how so often white people we feel uncomfortable with the anger of communities of color, and then we're like. Hey, can you calm it down? And it's really like just about our, and again, it, it kind of speaks to that imbalance of power there when it's like often white people's discomfort with communities of color anger, right? Is that fair? Yeah. And that's why I think so much of what um, white culture has done is try to yeah. um, create systems and that 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 um robert's rules of order you know that <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. rules of the forum um all of these ways to sort of make it seem like anger is irrational and yeah, unwelcome yeah. right it's yeah. not a legitimate form and and that isn't just another way of policing people who have experienced depression, right? That that the grown-ups in the room are the ones with are the cool-headed ones, mm, right? As yeah. as if there is not also um room that that can be made for like expressions of of real rage and sorrow at the at the at what people experience in their lives. Um and we just see that replicated in our church systems, mm-hmm. in our our school systems and you know it's just it's just part of the culture of whiteness that we live in. Well that's a what's well, a great example that Robert rules Robert's rules I'm thinking of that cuz 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 if I'm if I'm hearing you right it's kind of like this idea like you know those it's primarily white people who are doing these Robert rules and and 
you know, often it's like we don't really have anything to be upset about. So it's like, of course, we can like be decorum and follow the rules, but we're not, like you said, we're not making space for people. And if, if, yeah, what a great example. I can't get my head processed around anymore, but what a great example. Um, let's talk about, talk about, uh, this was, I think, your last chapter or something. I found that this quite intriguing. How to properly love an enemy. Hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I, um, I think this is, this is such an important question, because again, when we start to look at this through the lens of, of power, mm-hmm. um, we can we often find out that um, we have reduced this to the people to the burden bearers being the ones who have to serve to, to love their enemies, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. And and so, what does it mean to be in the in the power majority and of all of these different spaces? You know, heteronormativity and whiteness and gender and and sort of like what does that actually mean about your relationships of enmity? Um, and um, instead, to again, sort of wanting to collapse the sort of internal external world and say, actually, what it means to love our enemies is to want for them want want for them a, a better life mm-hmm. than is actually provided by the kind of power um consumption like recognizing that you know being an ice agent is actually bad for ice agents <laughs> like yeah. like putting yourself into a position of having to um to deport people who've spent their like to break up families and neighborhoods and communities that is a wound on your soul. Like yeah. we are, we want more for you yeah. than than live with um, the the trauma and guilt and shame of participating in a in a in a in a state culture of white supremacy. Yeah, right. Um, and so to recognize that. Um, you know, we are the the worlds that we're trying to construct are not um, like oh, we're just trying to flip the hierarchy here. Like now, we want the the oppressed people on top, and we want you to kind of suffer. Mm-hmm. We actually want to end to like a culture of punishment. Yeah, <laughs> like we want we actually want um, a world where people can return to their communities without feeling like. Um, uh, the only way to live is they have to get the most money and the most mm-hmm. power. Yeah. And, you know, the person who controls the stock market controls, we actually just want to end that system. Yeah. And that's good for everybody. Yeah. Right. Like that's actually, that is actually a better world. And so when you're, so instead of, I think, and, you know, I, I should say, I am like individual reconciliation, working through conflict together. All of that is important. Right. Um, none of that is negated by, but to say um, to love your enemies is is to create a world that's better for all of us mm. <laughs> um, is a piece of that that I think is ju- we just don't talk enough about in um, at least in in the sort of majority white Mennonite sort of American Christianity circle that that has formed me. Yeah, I'm I'm thinking when you talk about like the ICE agent, you probably study this, but the moral injury comes to mind. Uh, I can't remember her name, Dr. Brock, her first name, but doctor, I think it's Dr. Brock has done a lot of work in 
soul or moral injury. Um, mm. And also, I, I wanted to get to this. So I'm glad we this this quote from your book really the I think it was in the end kind of stood out to me that the work of liberation is to create a world where enemies are freed from enacting harm. And mm. I I think this is one of the things that I'm most grateful for. Um, when we think through these different um, theologies and, um, you know, I'll say like as a, as a straight white father, like I have a lot to be thankful for, grateful for from like feminism. Uh, like mm. I can hug my kids and kiss my kids and like be loving with my kids. And like, I don't have to worry. Well, not so much worry at least about like yeah. losing my man card, you know, being a right. beta male. And, yep. I just, and I'm just kind of like, Okay, I lost that, you know, long time ago. I'm okay with that. Yeah. Uh, and I think I'll just say, like, from my social position, that's I'm. This is why I'm really grateful for these different perspective perspectives and ways of thinking about the world. Because again, it's not just for it's not just for people of color. Like, it's for all of our healing. And I'm just mm-hmm. so grateful for uh, these different ways of looking at things in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Alicia Garza, one of the founders of Black Lives Matter, she's had this um, line that is so central to just how I think about my life and my work and the gospel and reconciliation. Um, When that, that we all get free together. Yeah. You know, we, we are, our, our freedoms and, um, and it's just, you know, this, that, her phrase is an echo of Fannie Lou Hamer's phrase, which is, um, you know, none of us is free until all of us are free. Yeah. Um, and so actually recognizing that my liberation, like I can't actually be free yeah. until yep. like the, the, till I am broken free from the structures of power that, that, that keep me in a place of, um, uh, of, all of of dist- of being participating in the material destruction, um, the emotional destruction of people of color. Like like I like my my freedom is absolutely bound up in that. Um, and that and so so when we work towards this kind of liberation, um, it's actually getting us all free. Yeah. Um, and that that is the good news of Jesus Christ. That is it. Like Amen. Like preach it, Pastor Melissa. Yeah. Preaching. <laughs> today on the pod. Yeah, I love it. I love it. It's just like, yeah. And I think what's hard is like uh like white people we don't see we don't see that the ways they're not so obvious and external the ways that they're eating our soul. Mm. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and so yeah, so how do you how do you begin to sort of break open uh for people that this is, you know, that that you are somehow bound up in these systems too. And I think that like begins with the sort of shedding of light into the, the, the mutuality of our oppressions mm-hmm. and the mutuality of our freedom. Yeah. How to have an enemy, uh, be looking for it in July. Let's take a break and we'll come back with some closing questions. All right. We're back with pastor Melissa Flora Bixler. Uh, Melissa, thanks for your time today. For these closing questions, again, you can take these as seriously or not as you'd like to. Uh, but if you're Pope for a day, what's that day mm. look like for you? Uh, you know, um, I think it would be um, I'm required by my Anabaptist 
um, uh, spiritual heritage that I would need to um, uh, ban the papacy <laughs> on that day. Like I would, I would just disband it. Um, magisterium gone, like a new, a, a, a new non-hierarchical um, church in place. So just uh, go all in. I'm going all in with my day. We better hope some of my guests don't ever get this position because there's a lot of folks who are on the same same track as you. So, <laughs> oh, <I> think, <laughs> <laughs> um, a theologian or historical Christian figure you'd want to meet or bring back to life. Oh, um, I would love to meet Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop. Yeah, a few of quotes from your book um, from him in your book, right? I really, I really appreciate him, but um, I want to say that one of the um, really the most important theological um, aspects of Ron Williams is that his favorite movie is The Muppets Christmas Carol, um, <laughs> which is a Christmas classic and um, just like a really, just really good theology and like highly recommend like you form your kids around that movie. So I wish we had more time. I need to hear email. more about that. Yeah, I read in an interview once and it's like, just changed my life. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Um, what do you think history will remember from our current time and place? Oh, man. Um, this is like hot mess of COVID, hot right? Mess. I think this is just, yeah, like revealed. Um, if we had any sense that there was sort of a a a, a mutual sort of understanding of our of our corporate flourishing we have just blown that away that will that will not, it will be that people did what they what they felt like they were going to do with no regard for their neighbor yeah. um and that that was the dominant story um of of this time and um yeah this is this feels like a very strong time to uh for the for original sin to be <laughs> to be revealed fully oh, among us, man, Melissa, you're dropping so much stuff here that I'm like, oh, that could be a whole another conversation. We could talk about original sin for 40 minutes, but yeah, yeah, I'm actually I'm actually fine with original sin. I know it's like not a popular doctrine these days, mm-hmm. but I mean, look around, right? Like COVID. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm just gonna leave that there. I'll leave that there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, what are your hopes then? What are your hopes for the future of Christianity? Hmm. Uh, yeah. What are my hopes for the future of Christianity? You know, I, um, I feel, I feel like my hope is, um, less, um, linear, um, that, that, uh, you know, I don't really hope to see like, like the church, um, kind of, be better. Mm-hmm. Like, I think I've sort of given up on, on that, but I do hope that there will be um, more churches who are not afraid of failure yeah, and who are okay with um, finding their place on the outskirts of the winning side of Christianity and knowing that, being faithful to the gospel is actually more, even more important than surviving. Um, and that they'll just live these radical in the radical Jesus sense lives and know that what the world does is wipes out people like that. <laughs> and, um, and, 
but we were already promised that um, we already knew that getting into this and um, and that is actually a really good life to live. I had to write that down. Faithfulness to the gospel is more important than survival. Seems especially relevant here when we're coming out of COVID. Well, uh, where can people find out more about you and and get your book? Yeah, so I have a website, um, melissa.floribixler.com, which is a good place to check in. It's just my name. Pretty easy to Google. Um, you can find me on Twitter where I try to be on my best behavior, but am not always. So just warning in advance. Well, this has been such a great conversation. Thanks so much for your time and, uh, really appreciate hearing your thoughts. So always leave folks with a word of peace. So may God's peace be with you. I receive it. Thank you, Lauren. And same to you. Thanks for joining us on the future Christian podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is produced by Torn Curtain Arts in partnership with Resonate Media. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit futurechristian.com. If you've enjoyed the show and you think it would be valuable for others to hear, subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. That really helps more people find us. Thanks again and go in peace.